Holy Spirit, once again, we come to hear from you. You speak through the written word that was revealed. You speak in our hearts. You speak through your people. And Lord, we, we want to hear your voice above all the other voices that we hear today. Jesus, we want to lift you up. The scriptures reveal you to us. May we know you better and follow you as your disciples. And God, our Father, creator of all things, everything that we have is an act of your grace. May we be grateful and worshipful. May we be the people that you intend us to be a little bit more today. Holy Spirit, Jesus the Son, God our Father, we pray to you, the three in one, the one in three. Amen. This morning we're going to do something different. We're going to have a, a conversation, a little bit of a conversation. But I want to invite you to, to look at the book of 2 Timothy with me. Um, now, next week we're going to start a study. Um, I, last week I asked for a poll. You guys didn't help me at all because you voted equally. Um, but ne- next week we're going to start a study of the book of Deuteronomy. Um, and that's not a book that people will think of when they think of uh, Easter and Resurrection Sunday and all those things. Um, but, but there's actually a tremendous amount in Deuteronomy about God's redemption and the restoration of what is lost. Um, and so we're going to be studying Deuteronomy. So I'm in the middle of writing the study guide. I'll hand it out. Uh, we'll, we'll have it ready next Sunday. Um, we're going to read the book of Deuteronomy in, uh, in seven weeks. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to read it together. Uh, and we're going to engage with the text, and we're going to be talking about it on Sundays. Um, a Deuteronomy is a, is a rich, rich book. Um, it's not like some of the books of the Bible. You know, you, get, you go, all right, I want the weirdest book of the Bible. Go Ezekiel or Revelation. Just go right there. You're gonna, it's going to hit weird. I want the simplest book of the Bible. Uh, the Gospel of John is pretty straightforward. Matthew, Mark, they're pretty straightforward. Ruth is pretty straightforward. I want the shortest book of the Bible. You've got, you got a collection there. You can go uh, all kinds of directions. Um, but Deuteronomy is probably one of the most, um, most pecu- peculiarly written books of the Bible because it, it, it has a very interesting literary style um, that really uh, conveys a lot of truth from the Scriptures. But this morning, today, today what we're going to talk about I want to talk about the what of the Bible. Now, for some folks, this is going to be just basic review. Some of you, this is stuff that you learned in Sunday school. Um, but I find that in, in the church, capital C, just Christianity in general, the term Bible or scriptures gets thrown around a lot, um, and there's not often a lot of explanation about what it is. And this morning, we're not going to talk about what it is theologically, although we could spend a lot of time about the theology of what the Bible is. But rather, we're going to talk about it from the practical point of view. What is the Bible? What is it that we hold in our hands? Because it's a lot more than just a book that was printed on a printing press somewhere along the line. Um, And so we're going to be looking at that. And so this morning, we're going to start in the book of 2 Timothy and chapter 3, when the Apostle Paul, speaking to um, one of his apprentices, protégés, successors, whatever you want to call him, Timothy, um, speaking to Timothy about the power of the scriptures. And we're going to be, uh, we're going to start in verse 14, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from what you, from whom you learned it and how, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings or the, the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from, the lis- from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of the evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Now there's a lot. Um, going on in this passage of scripture and and we could talk about a lot of the terms and and ideas that are there but I, I want to zoom in and focus on the fact that when Paul when when he Paul gets down to brass tacks when he gets down to where the rubber meets the road he's at the end of his ministry and he's got a he's got to make he's got to trust that Timothy can handle the job the one thing that he says to him is remember what the bible is Remember what it is and anchor yourself to it because there's going to be all kinds of voices. There's going to be all kinds of opinions. There's going to be all kinds of ideas. And a lot of them are going to be really attractive to a lot of people. People are going to accumulate to themselves teachers because they have itching ears. Well, what's an itching ear? They want to hear what they want to hear. I joke around all the time about uh, uh, how there was a motivational speaker one time on PBS. I just flipped them through channels back when people flipped through channels. Um, and, um, and I hit this motivational speaker and he was talking about the purpose of your life. It wasn't the purpose driven life, different thing. Um, but he's talking about the purpose of your life and he talked for three hours and I just sat there captivated by his ability to say so much and say absolutely nothing (laughs) because he came out the, his conclusion ultimately was the purpose of your life is to discover the purpose of your life. Man, I could have paid for that. Um, when we come to the scriptures, and, and it's not that there aren't great things outside of the Bible. There are extraordinary truths and wisdom and, and history and studies and sciences. There are things that aren't in the Bible that are tremendous. But when we, we as Christians go to, lo- go to our lives and our work and our ministry, we need to understand the Bible. And in order to do that, we have to know what it is. So I want to spend this morning talking a little bit about what the Bible is. I've got some questions. They're actually in the bulletin. You can start thinking about your answers to those questions. Um, everybody's like, oh no, the bulletin. Um, but I want, to start with, I want to start with the breakdown of what the Bible is. Now the breakdown, uh, the, the, the first thing in the bulletin is a diagram of five components of the Christian Bible. But if you look at them, some of, the, some of the books are going to be in different places than you might be familiar with them from the table of contents of your Bible. Um, when I talk about the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, uh, I divide it the way that the Jewish Bible divides it. And it divides the, the scriptures into three parts. If you're ever going through a bookstore, if you go to Barnes & Noble and you go to the Jewish studies uh, area, you'll see a copy of the Bible and it will be called Tanakh. All right? T-A-N-A-K or T-A-N-A-C-H. That's actually, um, it's a, uh, uh, an acronym, um, comes from the names of the three parts of the Hebrew Bible, Torah, Nevim, and Ketuvim. 
um, the law or the instruction, the prophets, um, and the writings. So I want to very briefly just kind of go through the breakdown of the Bible because there are really five components to the Bible. Three of them are in the Old Testament, two are in the New Testament. The Torah, um, which means law, it's usually translated as law. Torah means instruction or guidance or, or how to live. Um, that's really where the Hebrew word comes from. And there are five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, Genesis, appropriately named, um, Genesis is the beginning of things, and the book of Genesis is the story of the beginning of things. Uh, the beginning of the whole world, right down to the descendants of Abraham and the, land, the, the people of Israel who figure uh, prominently in the rest of the Bible. Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers are the story of the people of Israel leaving Egypt. They are in slavery in Egypt, and Moses leads them out, um, and he gives them the Ten Commandments and all of those things, uh, which interestingly, the Bible does not call Ten Commandments. I don't know if you guys know this. The scriptures, the term is actually the Ten Words, not the Ten Commandments. Um, it's the Ten Words. The book of Deuteronomy, it's the Ten Words. Um, but he gives them the Ten Commandments, and then they wander around the wilderness for 40 years because they, no matter what they do, they just seem to get it wrong. Um, and then, uh, and then they, they go into the Promised Land. So Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers tell that story. And then Deuteronomy, which is the book that we're going to start studying, um, is actually a retelling of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Uh, the Greek name, Deuteronomy, Deuteros Nomos, the second law. Um, it is a retelling of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers later on in their history. Um, most people call these the books of Moses. Um, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers most definitely are written by Moses. Uh, Jesus says so. Um, Deuteronomy is basically a one big long sermon by Moses, although it tells Moses' death, so I'm going to go ahead and assume he didn't write it. Um, and then Genesis, people often call Genesis a book of Moses. We actually have no biblical evidence that, that Moses wrote Genesis, but it, it is uh, connected with those five. So that's the Torah, the law. They call them the Pentateuch, which means five books, um, or uh, the books of Moses. The second section is the Ketuvim, uh, or uh, the, the Nevim. Nevi means prophet. We, we translate that today as prophet. It's one of those curious things that happens. Uh, it's actually a Greek word. Prophet is a Greek word, prophetis. Um, but it, it, we're not, it doesn't really encompass what a Nevi was. Uh, a Nevi, which what we translate as a prophet, uh, and, and you're gonna, this is going to sound really weird, but a Nevi is basically just a pastor, pastor with a little extra kick. Um, Nevi simply means the speaker. All right. in, in Babylonian, in old Babylonian, they're called the ragamu, which is way cooler than nevi. I, like to, I want to put that on my business card, ragamu. Um, uh, but it means the speaker, the word giver. Um, and, uh, and a prophet is primarily somebody who goes and tells the truth to people that don't want to hear it. Now, sometimes God gives them visions and they see the future, but for the most part, their job was to speak the truth. And the books of the prophets are divided into two pieces. Uh, first, there's the former prophets, what we call um, the, the uh, Nevi, Nevim Rishonim, um, which just means the early prophets. Uh, and that's Joshua, Judges, First uh, and Second Samuel, and First and Second Kings. And then there's a second set, the Nevim Akaronim. Um, those are the latter prophets, um, or the, literally the late prophets. Um, and that's Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, and then a book called The Twelve. Now, if you open your Bible and you look in the table of contents, you'll see a bunch of names at the end of the Old Testament. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Um, 
in, in the Jewish Bible, they just call them the 12. Even they didn't like saying all those names. All right? Uh, it's just, the book is just called The Twelve. Um, and, and so the prophets, that, the prophets basically tell the story of Israel. That's really what the, the job of the prophets is. They tell the story of Israel coming into the promised land, what is today the land of Israel, the conquests, the struggles they had, the kings they had, the divisions they had, um, and then ultimately their captivity um, by the Assyrians, the northern part by the Assyrians, and the southern part uh, by the Babylonians. And that's the job of the prophets, and the former prophets, and then the later prophets talk mostly about God restoring the kingdom. It's really mostly what it's about. Then the last section of the Hebrew Bible is called the Ketuvim, uh, the writings. Um, and it's divided basically into, this is my favorite thing, the Jewish Bible divides them into two sections and a bunch of other stuff. There's two, there's two book, book sections, and, and then there's like, yeah, and then there's a miscellaneous folder. Um, and the first one, the first, the first set is called the Sifrei Hemet. Um, Sefer means book. Um, Sifrei means uh, books. Uh, Hemet means poetry. And those are the books of Psalms, Proverbs, and Job. Uh, Psalms is songs. Proverbs is, I know this is going to be profound, Proverbs. Um, and Job is actually kind of a massive stage play. It's, it's a really interesting book, and we, we studied that several years ago. We spent uh, our resurrection season looking at the book of Job. And then there's another set called Chamesh Megalot. Um, and I just love words that start with Cha. Uh, the Chamesh Megalot. Um, these are the, the, Chamesh means five. Megalot means the great scrolls. These are the five festal scrolls. These are scrolls that were specifically read, read for specific feasts. The Song of Songs, which is a book that no one ever preaches from the Bible uh, during church services because it's a very graphic book. Uh, the Song of Songs is actually read during Passover, Pasha. Um, and then uh, after the Song of Songs was read during Passover, the book of Ruth is read during the season of Shavuot, which is called Pentecost. That's 50 days after Passover. And Pentecost just means 50 days. Um, that's all that word means. So when you're, when, when you're a Pentecostal, you just believe everything works in 50 days. That's not how it works. That's not what that means. Um, then, so Ruth, uh, Ruth is read at Shavuot. Um, and then lamentation is read at a particular day called Tisha B'Av, uh, the ninth of Av. Uh, this is the day that Jerusalem, the, the Jerusalem temple was destroyed in 586 BC. And they read the book of Lamentations on that day, the ninth day of Av. Um, Av is a month. Um, then Ecclesiastes is read during the feast of uh, Shavuot. Uh, I'm sorry, Sukkot, which is tabernacles. They would go to Jerusalem and they would set up tents um, and they would celebrate their, their departure from the wilderness. Um, and then the last book, Esther, uh, is read during the Feast of Purim, which the Purim is actually started because of the book of Esther. It's a story of the Jews almost being massacred by the Persians um, and then God miraculously saving them through a woman um, who, uh, who is uh, the queen of Persia. And then there's this set of books that the, even the Jews don't have a way to organize them into any kind of category. Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, which are two books in the Jewish Bible, and First and Second Chronicles. Um, and they don't have a name for those. And if you read the book of Daniel, you'll know why there's no way to have a name for that book. Um, the book of Daniel has got multi-headed goats and uh, statues with clay feet and a lot of weird imagery in it. Numbers that literally at the end of the book of, of Daniel, there's actually a moment where Daniel says, I don't know what any of this means. And the angel of the Lord goes, yeah, that's not going to, you're never going to know. And that's the end of the book. 
It's a great way to end a book. Talk about a cliffhanger. It's like, wait, there's more, right? No, it's done. Um, and then Ezra and Nehemiah is the story of the people of Israel being restored uh, to Jerusalem uh, in, uh, during the Persian Empire around 522 B.C. Um, two guys, Ezra's a priest, Nehemiah was a, uh, the cupbearer of the king. And then First and Second Chronicles, like Deuteronomy, retells Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. First and Second Chronicles retells First, Sam- First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. So there's two books that are like that. Then we get into the Christian Bible, and the Christian Bible has two parts. Uh, Euangelion, Gospels, and Epistoli, Epistles, or Letters. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, and John. You go, wait, Luke, Acts? What is that? That's a hyphenated name. That's like if you live in South America, um, you get a hyphenated name. No, Luke and Acts, the books of Luke and Acts, Acts is actually the second part of the book of Luke. So even though in your Bibles, the book of John is in between them, um, they actually go together. They're written the same way. They're written by the same person. And then the Gospel of John. And then we get all these letters, the epistles, the epistles of Paul, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, um, and Philemon, the most mispronounced book of the Bible. Um, uh, Everybody's like, Philemon. I'm like, no, only if you're in Texas. No offense to those of you from Texas, but um, it's Philemon. Um, uh, And uh, and those those are basically divided up into letters to churches, letters that Paul wrote from prison, and letters that people, Paul wrote to individuals. Then there's uh, Peter writes two epistles, First and Second Peter, appropriately named. John writes three epistles, named, amazingly, First, Second, and Third John, um, and the book of the Revelation. And then there's the books of Hebrews and Jude, which are called the Catholic epistles, or the, um, not because they're Roman Catholic, but they're written to everybody. The Greek word, katholikos, which means to everyone. So that's, that's physically what the Bible is. When you look at the Bible, you can see the Bible divided into five parts. And, and why put so much emphasis on Why spend so much time talking about that particular thing? Because the reality is the Bible is not a one-dimensional book. You can't just get a handout that says this is how to read the Bible, and you can just go, okay, so I just read it. I mean, how many of you, started, how many of you tried to read the Bible from cover to cover when you first became a believer and stopped part of the way through. Because you start reading and then you hit this section in numbers. You're like, oh, I wonder what numbers this is about. It's about numbers. There's just pages and pages of numbers. Right? And, and then you get lost on, oh, okay, so the ark was on three cubits by two cubits by one cubit and there were 18 pomegranates and there was, and you're like, what is going on? Most of the people that start reading the Bible that way, they find out that very quickly, okay, this, first of all, it's not organized chronologically. Like, you read Genesis, you're like, okay, I get where we're going. I get where we're going. Exodus, you get through Exodus, you're like, okay, I get where we're going. Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, I have no idea where I'm going. And then you read, you, uh, then it picks back up. You hit, you hit Joshua, Judges, you're like, okay, I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it. You read Ruth, oh, that was good, that was a good one. First and second Samuel, okay, names are starting to get confusing. First and second Kings, why does everybody's name start with J? And then you get to Chronicles, and there are 14 chapters of genealogies. So obviously, reading the Bible, you have to read the Bible understanding it's not a one-dimensional book like we're used to. We're used to books having a beginning, a middle, and an end. Now, the Bible, broadly speaking, has that, the way that it's organized. But there are different pieces to the Bible, and they all have to be read differently. You can't read a psalm the way you can read an epistle. 
You can't read Revelation the way you read Genesis. You can't read Job the way that you would read Nehemiah. They're different books of the Bible, and they require a little bit of work. Now, I will say that everybody can read the Bible with the right tools to read it correctly. Because I don't know if you know this, the Bible was not written by one guy at one time. It's not like Jesus sat down and went, all right, boys, let's go. I'm going to crank out 66 books. The Bible was written over the course of about 3,000 years in four languages. Okay? Um, there's a lot going on, or three languages. There's a lot going on in the Bible. So I want to ask some questions. You don't have to have deep or profound answers. You can have personal answers. You can have silent answers. Or you can shout out your answers because maybe it's a frustration. The first question is, why do people misunderstand or misapply the biblical text? And this is not a right or wrong. Why did they do it? Okay. Some people go to the Bible looking for approval of their own behavior. What are some other... Reasons people might misunderstand the Bible, Ray, and then Lucy. And sometimes it's subject to interpretation. Lucy? Ignorance of languages, right? Dave? Trying to apply a modern context. All right, Russ in the back. Okay, they don't understand the history, right? Cheryl? (laughs) They're not safe. All right, not believers. Yep. So they can, they can read the text, but they're not going to see with the Spirit's eyes. Read a tiny part and not appreciate its whole context. Logan? They go to a Bible, the Bible with a different expectation. Now, I'll be honest, how many of you, when you're early believers, you went to the Bible thinking, if I could just find a Bible verse that answers this problem, I'll have all my issues solved. Well, there's got to be a Bible verse for this. And I could just get him, if I could just keep reciting that Bible verse, it'll fix it. Um, how many of you ever thought you understood a book of the Bible and then studied it and realized you didn't understand it? Okay, happens to me all the time. I'm like, yeah, I got this down. I've been doing this for 40 years. How could I possibly get it wrong? Oh boy, did I get that wrong. Um, how many of you ever suffer from an issue of, of, I know this is in the Bible somewhere, and then you find out it's not? I was a high school Bible teacher. Uh, I one time said to my kids, I was like, I want you to search the Bible until you find this verse. Now, I knew it wasn't in the Bible. From each according to their ability to each according to their need. Go. I know I saw that. I know I saw it. It's in there somewhere. It's got to be in Proverbs. That's Karl Marx. (laughs) Cleanliness is next to godliness. Go. It's not in the Bible. That was John Wesley. All right. Um, and I, sometimes I would tell my kids, look in the book of Hezekiah. And they would tear their Bibles looking away for the book of Hezekiah, which isn't there. Um, yeah, you remember that one. Um, they, you know, and every time I said something wasn't in the Bible, they're like, that's not in the Bible. It's in the book of Second Opinions. <laughs> all right. So why do people misunderstand or misapply the biblical text? And we've all kind of, we've all hit these. Okay. We've all hit these. Number one is the assumptions we bring to the Bible. You will see the Bible through the lenses you bring to the Bible. Uh, Recently, I had to learn to wear reading glasses. This is quite the challenge, but easier than progressives. I'm just going to go ahead and that. Janet keeps telling me if I just work on it, I'll learn the progressives. I'm too lazy. 
Um, so I had to learn, but I have learned that if I have my reading glasses on and I'm working and then my daughter asks me a question, I look up, suddenly she looks like, I'm like, whoa, all right, you will bring to the Bible what you, the lenses that you bring to the Bible, you need to be honest about it. One of the problems in our world is we tend to think, well, if I, I can just develop a fully objective approach to this, I'm going to break through and have all the answers. But the reality is we come to the Bible, we come to the Bible with certain lenses on, and we need to be honest about those. Because when you're honest to yourself about what you bring to the Bible, when you're in a conversation with someone else about the Bible, and they're honest about the lens they bring, and you're honest about the lens you bring, you can actually have a conversation that enriches both of you. I have a lot of friends that come from a lot of different Christian backgrounds. Uh, we have a lot of folks in our congregation that come from a lot of different backgrounds. We've got everything from Roman Catholics to Methodists to, to, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to uh, Pentecostals and Charismatics. We even got a few Baptists in. We've got uh, Christian church. We've we got all these different backgrounds. If we're just honest about, I studied the Bible in this context when I was a kid or as a new believer. And so you can just, you can talk, you can communicate, you can, you can both grow if you're honest about the lens you bring in. The second one we bring in, which, Dave, which was brought up several times, uh, uh, that Russ brought up about the historical context, and Dave brought about the modern setting, is presentism. The, the hermeneutic crime of presentism. Presentism is believing that the way that things are now is the way the world always was. Um, that you look at the world and you go, this is the way the world should, always was. Or even worse, you get a nostalgic presentism. Um, the world should be the way that I decided the world was best. Every single generation does this to their children. We never misbehaved like you. When I was your kid, we walked 17 miles both ways, uphill, in the snow, to get to the school bus. We didn't have feet. I had to borrow them from the neighbors. All right, we all do this. It's like, and, and everybody reaches a point. My daughter reached it as a high school senior. She looked around the freshman. She's like, they are so immature. We were not like them. And of course she wasn't, but I'm sure there were plenty in her class that were. My daughter is a perfect angel and I won't hear any other. Anyway, um, not, not true. Um, but, uh, but we have a tendency to, to presentism. We tend to think that the way that things are now is the way that they were in those days. Let me share you a couple, real quick a couple of cases of presentism that has occurred that's actually altered the interpretation of Scripture. For a long time, we had this idea somewhere in our society that the Bible was demeaning to women. It developed in a society that, guess what, was demeaning to women. So they went to the Bible and they went, see, the Bible proves women should shut up and have babies. Now, I wish I were making that up, but that's a reality of the church. But when we read the scriptures, do you guys happen to notice, I mentioned something. The people of Israel were saved in the book of Esther by who? A woman. Some of the greatest saviors, some of the greatest types of Christ in the Bible are women. There's a judge named Deborah who is Oh, a woman with that name, obviously. I know the biblical names can be confusing. Um, when you read Luke and Acts, when you read Paul, you find out that the church would not have survived if it weren't for the women. So, so presentism, by the way, Jesus' mom. A woman. 
surprising. We talked about Mary uh, during Christmas season and just how, how strong a woman she really was. Not this meek, frail teenager, but a woman who walked into the temple courts while her son was arguing with the rabbis and priests, told everybody to shut up so he could ask, she could ask Jesus a question. That is not a frail woman. Presentism often colors our thinking. We think of the world in our present day. And the other thing that really affects it is our, our personal experience and our education. When you go to a secular college, what are you told about the Bible? It's a collection of stories. It's an important religious text. It's, it's a, but, you know, it's just like all of the other biblical te- uh, religious texts. Now, I'm just going to tell you right off the bat, I've read most of the other religious texts of the world. And while there are similarities, and by that I don't mean just the ones that are around today. I've read the ancient ones that were around when the Bible was around, when the Bible was being written. I'm just going to tell you, the Bible is different. It's different. It is not the same. Uh, in, In the Babylonian mythology, the world is created when one god slaughters another god, rips the body in half, and creates the world. Don't see that in the Bible. Um, so so there, there is something about the Bible, but our experience and our education colors the way we read the Bible. It colors it both positively and it colors it, colors it negatively. Um, uh, uh, Lori, Lori and, and Greg Jones were, were Jehovah's Witnesses. When they came to faith in Jesus Christ, you better, you better had, and, and those of you that didn't know Greg, um, who passed away, uh, if you didn't know Greg, you better have a biblical reason for whatever you're about to say. Because Greg was a Jehovah's Witness, and, and they had twisted the scriptures in, in the religion that he was raised in, Greg wanted a biblical reason for everything we did in the church. And we needed that. We needed that voice. Um, so your personal experience in education will, will sometimes lead to misunderstanding, but the same things that lead to misunderstanding can also, when we acknowledge them, and we recognize that we, we do live in our modern context. So we have to be aware that there is a difference between my world and their world. We, we do have personal experiences and lenses that we see, through, see the Bible through. That helps us to be able to understand not only the Bible itself, but other people talking about the Bible. Because ultimately, reading the Bible is a communal thing. It's something we do together. So let me ask this question, the second question. How do we read the biblical texts? How should we read the biblical texts? There's no right or wrong answer to this question. I have a a way I'm going to go, but how should we read them? What's the best way to read the Bible? Chronologically, that's a good one. Undistracted? Was something over here? Out loud? Always out out loud. I'm a big fan of out loud. Some of you have not, not been through me reading, me having the church read the Gospels out loud. Last one we did was the Gospel of Mark, right? Luke? Luke. We did Luke. It took us two and a half hours. We did it out loud here as part of our Sunday service. And we've done, I've actually done all four Gospels that way. We will not be doing that for the book of Isaiah, in case you're wondering. <laughs> 66 chapters is a little much. Um, out loud, chronologically, um, without distractions, Ray? Meditatively, okay. Okay, with understanding, okay. Nicole, with the church, all right, reading it as part of the community, super important. 
I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you, I'm going to go a slightly different direction. All those are great points. I'm going to say, number one, we need to read the Bible grammatically. You say, what? How many of you have ever read a part of the Bible and went, I have no idea what that just said? The words were all over the place. Paul in Romans, the things that I would, that I do not, that which I would not, that I do. I find in myself a body of it. He's going on and on and on and on. And everybody's going, what? You have to actually sit down and go, what's the grammar here? How is this being written? What, what is the sentence structure? What's the paragraph structure? How does this fit? Um, every kid's favorite Bible verse to memorize. In Vacation Bible School, if you ever get credit for a number of Bible verses memorized, what's the first verse that pastor's kid is going to memorize? Jesus wept. It's not even the shortest verse in the Bible. It's the shortest in English, but pray without ceasing. In 1 Thessalonians, it's shorter in Greek. So you can really mess with people if you want to do that. Um, but uh, the, uh, there's, uh, uh, they, Jesus wept. Let's memorize the short verses. I was that kid in VBS who memorized Esther 8-9, which is the longest verse in the Bible. Now, don't ask me to repeat it now. That was 30 years ago. All right? It's the longest verse of the Bible. has absolutely no modern meaning. It's just about the, priest, the, the Persian king assembling all of his satraps and governors and, and administrators. and all. It just goes on and on and on. All right? But we have to read it grammatically. We have to read it historically. We've mentioned this several times. We need to know the context. Uh, that's one of the reasons I consider myself a historian first, a theologian second. I need, to know, I need to know the historical context of what we're reading. And then thirdly, we need to learn it, we need to read it canonically. That's a big word. What does that mean? The canon, the word canon is a Latin word for a measuring stick. The idea that is that the canon, uh, the, that which has become scripture, the 66 books of the Bible, are the standard. And so if you're reading a passage of scripture, say, for example, Paul makes a mention about the baptism for the dead at one point. And you read that and you go, what does that mean? You could develop all kinds of theories about what it means by just reading that verse. But in order to truly understand it, you need to read it within the canon. You have to read it within Scripture. So if you come up with some weird anomalous doctrine out of that verse, guess what? You're wrong. Because it all fits together. Um, people, people, one of the things that people love to do with the Gospels, try to chronologically order the Gospels. I've seen many, many attempts of this. You know what's funny about doing that? Somehow it never occurs to people that Jesus might have done the same thing twice. Well, in Matthew, Jesus heals two blind men on the way to Jericho, but in Luke, he only heals one. I might have that backwards. Therefore, one of them must be right, and one of them must be wrong. Here's a novel idea. Maybe Jesus did it more than once. Well, Jesus feeds 4,000 here and 5,000 here, and in one, he has 10 baskets, and then he has 12 baskets, so one of those must be original. Listen, if you can feed 5,000 people with one kid's lunch, what are the odds you're only going to do it once? Especially once people find out. They're like, I'm hungry. Let's go hang out with Jesus. Um, same thing. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff in the Gospels like that. People read it and they go, well, this can't fit, so it must be wrong. A novel idea. You know how much of the, uh, chronologically, how much of, the how much of Jesus' life the Gospels actually cover? Less than a month. Man died in his 30s. I'm going to go ahead and assume there was more going on. I mean, when you get less than a month of his life, and we know he had three years 
of earthly ministry, go ahead and say he probably repeated things. And as a pastor, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, that's, I mean, that's what we do. Public speakers repeat stuff. Because if we don't, people forget stuff. That's what we do. All right? You have to do it. Um, so it's got to be canonical. It's got to be intertextually. You've got to read it. You read Jesus and he says something. I hate it when people read one thing that Jesus said. And they go, ah, the big, there's a meme on the internet. Oh, man, this drives me nuts. This, this irritates me to no end. There's a meme of a, a, a priest. He's dressed in all his robes. He's got a, a piece of cardboard. And he holds it up and says, what Jesus said about homosexuality. He turns around and it's blank. What Jesus said about abortion. He turns around and blank. First of all, I'm sitting there going, so you've never read the Bible. That's pretty obvious. Because the Bible does have a lot to say about preborn children. And the Bible does have a lot to say about human sexuality. So the fact that you're thinking that Jesus never talked about that means you've never really read the Gospels. You've never really read Jesus. But people read one thing. Well, Jesus said we're supposed to love everybody. So therefore, and we extrapolate. And then we, we seem to forget that one of the points of Jesus' love is correction because we're sinners. That one of the points of grace is that God forgives us so that we don't continue in sin. So that's why I talk about reading it intertextually, canonically. Um, we've already bumped on some of these. What are some of the barriers between us and the meaning of the biblical text? Language. Somebody brought up language. The Bible was written in a Northwestern, two Northwestern Semitic languages, um, and Semitic languages are literally from the moon, in case you're wondering. Um, they are the weirdest languages in the world. Every word only has three letters. They don't write vowels. Um, you imply verbs. They only have two tenses. Now, this is my favorite thing about Hebrew, because Japanese is very similar. Um, Hebrew only has two tenses. It's either going on or it's done. Then you have to figure out whether it's going on in the past, present, or future, or it's done in the past, present, and future. It's so, it's so simple and requires so much context that when Hebrew was developed as a modern language, they had to invent verb tenses to explain things. Now, not like English. English, we have verb tenses for things that have not started yet, but we will begin in soon, and then we'll be finished before the future. It, not like that. But Hebrew is a weird language. It's a hard language to learn. Greek, it's got weird things. The letter that looks like a P is pronounced as an R. The letter that looks like a little house is pronounced as P. They got one that has a little circle with a line that goes through it, and that one's pronounced F. Then they got another one with a line that goes through that way, and it's pronounced F. They got like 16 vowels. There's long vowels, short vowels, bouncy vowels. And on top of that, the, uh, not, there actually is, there's, there's an accent. Uh, that, that is circumflex, that the, the word is supposed to go, ah. <laughs> but the, there's, um, you read Greek and then you realize that the guys that are writing it are not native Greek speakers, so sometimes they're not writing in good Greek. Language can be a barrier. Translating the language can be a barrier. My personal favorite is the moment when the translator of the Bible, one of the English translators of the Bible, or actually Latin translator of the Bible, is going along and he hits the Greek word bautizo, which means to immerse. It means to put under water. I mean, it's, when you make pickles, um, you immerse, you bautizo the things that you're making pickles with. Right? That's what the word means. He goes, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to cause confusion and frustration for every Christian that comes after me. I'm just going to transliterate that as baptize. Language can be a barrier. Culture can be a barrier. 
How do we deal with the Old Testament? Where great heroes of the faith have multiple wives. Culture can be a problem. Bias can be a problem. So let me ask you in the last couple minutes, what do you do when you don't understand the biblical text? What do you do when you don't understand the biblical text? Thanks. (laughs) 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 Ask questions. Ask questions. Not just the pastor. I appreciate that. Um, but the pastor say, of course, a lot of times people ask me a question. Mike, Mike's infamous for asking me questions, and I come back with my favorite verse in the Bible, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong unto the Lord, but the things which have been revealed unto the sons of men, those you may know. <laughs> but, um, all right, so ask questions. Ask the pastor. Ask somebody that's, that's, that's leading. What else? What else can we do? Study. Yeah, study Bible. Do research. Be willing, be willing to learn new things. All right? Be willing to learn new things. What else? Read more. <laughs> read the context. Um, don't be afraid to put a note in your Bible or a tag or something. I don't understand this. And then keep reading and see if the Bible do- doesn't explain what it is that you don't understand along the way. Or go back a little bit and watch a little bit more. You'd be fascinated. It's amazing to see how often the actual context will explain something that's confusing. What else? Thank you. <laughs> Pray. <laughs> Ask the Holy Spirit for direction. Um, one of the biggest problems in academia is the belief that there is no spiritual aspect to the reading of the Bible. All right, and everything they—they, they, I mean, I, I'm an Old Testament person. And Old Testament scholars are infamous for saying things like, this cannot be true. This must be mythical because it doesn't occur now. Um, it fascinates me when somebody who claims to be a Christian, so just remember this is a person who believes that Jesus died, was buried, was raised again, and ascended to heaven, goes, well, Jonah couldn't possibly be a true story. Because how could someone possibly be swallowed by a big fish and then be spit out three days? I'm like, you do realize the, the paradox you've just created. You believe somebody died, was raised again. Oh, and by the way, that person was God, but you've got a problem with a fish. Maybe Jonah was little, like me. Ever think about that? All right. Um, and, and we run into that all the time. My, my dissertations on Elijah and Elisha, the number of scholars that go, well, Elijah... Elijah and Elisha have to be mythical because of the weird things they do. I mean, I, I don't know. I've seen weirder things in the Bible. So, um, so we pray uh, because we have to accept that reading the Scriptures, if a supernatural God inspired the Scriptures, our comprehension of the Bible has an aspect of the supernatural to it. And the last one I'm going to throw out to you is just this. How willing are you to just accept the mystery? Why do we need to have answers to everything? Why do we have to have only one answer? Some things are a mystery. Some things are meant to be. I like life with mystery. I hate surprises, but I like life with mystery. I love taking a road trip to somewhere I've never been. I I love exploring things that don't make sense. 
that don't fit into my world. Because when I encounter something that tells me that doesn't fit into my way of viewing the world, I'm reminded that God is bigger than me. Why is accepting the mystery such a problem? We need to ask questions. We need to engage in the community. We need to do research. We need to study. We need to be willing to to put in the effort to understand the Bible because everybody can understand the Bible. I really believe that every believer has the ability to understand the Scriptures, but not in isolation. Not isolated from the church, not isolated from authority, not isolated from the history, and not isolated from the Holy Spirit. It is so important that when we take the challenge that Paul gives to Timothy to preach the Word, that we put in the time and effort to understand the Word. And to read it as it needs to be read and let it be its full glory. One of the great things about being the history nerd that I am, the language nerd that I am, people ask me, how many languages do you speak? I speak one. I'm functionally illiterate in seven. Um, I can read Hebrew. I can't speak Hebrew. I can read Greek. I can't speak Greek. I learned Ugaritic, a very important language for the zero number of people alive who speak it, Um, which is basically just Hebrew with an accent. Um, I learned Japanese so I could talk to Lynn Swenson. I'm terrible with Japanese. Japanese, I mean, Japanese is an alien language anyway, but um, I mean, what language puts the verb of the sentence at the very end? You literally don't know what's going on until they hit the period. (laughs) That's just crazy. I think they did it on purpose to confuse all the gaijin, all the the Americans, but... um, but the, uh, you know, we, we, we have to put in this time. I love being a history person because history opens Scripture up so much. It helps us understand so much of it. It doesn't alter the core meaning of it, but it makes it so full. It fleshes it out. It builds it out. That's one of the things I love it. And sometimes people are like, can you please stop? We can't keep track of all these names and ideas. And you are way excited over the wrong things, you know? But the Bible, the Bible is such a deep and rich and beautiful thing. So next week, we're going to start the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to throw a lot of, there's going to be a lot of history in the study notes. I'm going to try to avoid putting them in the sermon. They're going to be in the study guide. So you can kind of, kind of flesh out your study of the book of Deuteronomy. But I think it'll be a very, very rewarding process for ha- us to have a conversation over the course of seven weeks about the book of Deuteronomy and what it means in our understanding of the resurrection and our hope in Jesus Christ. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, may your word be the guide and truth of our lives. Of our church, of course, but of our lives. Help us to know you better through your written word. We believe that you revealed this and only this to us as the absolute and final standard of faith and practice. But Lord, we need your help. We need the Holy Spirit. We need your church. We need each other as we journey through uh, this incredibly, beautifully complicated book. Lord, may your voice be heard above all others. In Jesus' name, amen. My brothers and sisters, go in peace.